Hey, everybody, before we get to the meat of the podcast, I've got a couple of con announcements. First, if you're going to Gen Con, guess what? So are Jeff Greiner, Rudy Basso, and I. If you want to see us, we're going to be doing a live roundtable at 5 p.m. the Friday of Gen Con. That's 5 p.m. on Friday, August 5th in the Crown Plaza in Grand Central Ballroom D. You can get a direct link to buy tickets for that panel over at thetomeshow.com or just search for it on the Gen Con event schedule. We're going to be joined by fan favorite panelists Liz Tice and others, TBA. Then, afterwards, at 7 p.m., we are headed to the Rock Bottom Brewery in downtown Indianapolis. Come join us for drinks, food, all kinds of good stuff. We'll even play some games. Then, if you can't be in Indianapolis, this is my last time telling you that I'm going to be a featured guest at Roll20Con. Roll20Con, it's a free online convention run by my favorite virtual table. If you've got internet, you can attend. It's going to be run for 24 hours starting this Friday, June 3rd, and it doesn't have just me. James D'Amato, Adam Coble, Nolan Jones, Anna Prosser Robinson, Margaret Crone, Rudy Basso, and so many other RPG superstars are going to be there. I'll be playing 5th edition D&D with Rudy Basso and some other awesome people including Greg Billsland of Wizards of the Coast. Then... At 2 p.m. Pacific time, I am going to play in a game with people from the crew of Dice Camera Action. That's right. I'm talking about Anna Prosser Robinson. I'm talking about Commander Holly. And I'm talking about Chris Perkins. That's right. I am going to DM a game with the DM to the stars. So I need your support. I need all the love and morale you can bring me, Tomites. So... You can get all the details at Roll20Con.net. Check it out. I can't wait to hear from you this Friday. All right, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intricasso. If you're listening for the first time, welcome to the show. But if you've been here before, do me a favor. Go give us a great rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. Seriously, if you've been listening to the Tome Show and paying nothing for it, but you want to help support us, go give us a great review. It takes less than a minute of your time. We do shout-outs to listeners who give us a great rating on the air. I'll read at least one new five-star rating verbatim each episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. Here are the words of Jackie Walker, all the way from Australia, with a review entitled, Entertaining and Didactic. The Tome Show, as well as the other shows like Behind the DM Screen, are just awesome. I'm a new DM from Brazil, started playing and DMing in April 2015. Ever since, I've been trying to find good podcasts I can listen to on my commute to work about games and RPGs. I found The Tome Show about a month ago when I was looking for reviews of Rise of Tiamat. Because I don't know any other DMs I could talk to about it. And sure enough, I stumbled upon this golden horde of content. Not only did I get the review I wanted, but I also got to hear really good insights from experienced DMs on what's good slash bad, how to run, what would be nice to change. From the way they talk, very casual and fun, it actually felt like I was talking to a couple of friends of mine. You, you know what? Uh, side note, this isn't in the review. We are a couple of friends of yours. All right, back to the review. 
I've been listening to whatever they post and would recommend it to anyone interested in D&D, RPGs, and or DMing. Cheers. P.S. There's only one thing I don't like in the show, and it's not big enough to influence the ratings, which is the intro that sounds like a Catholic priest during mast. I don't know if it's too loud or kind of weird, but I always try to skip it. Well, uh, thank you so much, Jackie Walker, who is apparently from Brazil and also Australia, according to iTunes. I really appreciate the review from wherever you are on the other side of the world. Please use the affiliate links on the tomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links of the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. It's super, super easy, and it helps support the show. Okay, today we are talking about why the Beastmaster Ranger is great, and then it's an interview with Craig Campbell about his Kickstarter for his new RPG, Murders and Acquisitions. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. What is your favorite beast companion? Dan Dillon, welcome back to the roundtable. Hey, James. It's great to be here again. Um, so my favorite beast companion, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a tricky question because it would be boring otherwise because I'm pretty sure my favorite is the same as uh, my esteemed colleagues. So I'm actually going to punt a little bit and go with some of my runner-up choices. And chief among them, I think, is the ubiquitous wolf. Um, the wolf brings a heck of a lot to the Beastmaster's table. Uh, it has good attack bonus, good armor class. It's very fast. And when you factor in all of the increases it gets from adding the ranger's uh, proficiency bonus, it has a massive passive perception score, something on the order of like 21, I believe. Uh, so it makes the ranger incredibly hard to sneak up on. Uh, the pack tactics gives it advantage to hit, and then the knockdown is just fantastic to spread that advantage around your party. So the wolf brings uh, a lot of a lot of pepper to the table. Nice, I like the the wolf. It's kind of a classic ranger companion as well. You know, people love it. Is it is, it is. <laughs> right? Right. I feel like when you think about a ranger's animal companion, one of the first things you think about is like wolves, cats bears, kind of. Uh, so why don't we introduce our new guest to the roundtable, Skylar Esau. Skylar, before we talk about your favorite beast companion, why don't you introduce yourself to the people, tell them a little bit about your background with tabletop RPGs. How long have you been playing? That kind of thing. All right. So I started playing tabletop RPGs in like 89, uh, and it was an after school program as part of like the the gifted, talented program in my elementary school. They uh, got a guy to come in and run. I'm going to say it was GURPS. I think that's actually wrong. I don't know what system it was. I was like eight at the time. Um, uh, but it was a science fiction uh, game, and I played the pilot of a spaceship that was exploring the galaxy. Uh, so that was my first one. And then not that long after that i uh started playing dungeons and dragons uh at my house with my dad and some of his friends and that was and then that's more what i've done since is the fantasy genre stuff although various other things over the years nice nice and what is your favorite beast companion my favorite beast companion and by the way, I'm going to say wolf is an excellent answer, especially because it is like such an archetypical 
uh, Beast Companion. So I'm really glad that they made it a good one because it's frustrating sometimes if you like have an idea but it doesn't play well, you know. But the the Cadillac of Beasts is the giant poisonous snake, mm. and uh, it's not really that close. Uh, and especially in this discussion about, you know, when people get into like white room discussions and what can it do, it has a lot going for it. The, the big thing is it does the 3d6 poison damage, uh, save for half, mm-hmm. which means it just does a lot more damage than any of the other beasts. Uh, and then also it's got the plus four dexterity bonus that it uses to hit and damage, which is another big bonus. Also has blind sight, a swim speed, and 10 foot reach. So it's it's basically the best all-around beast. Well, so I think these guys have clearly shown their stuff. You guys are well read up on the beasts as well as the Beastmaster Ranger. We're talking about the Beastmaster Ranger today because it is probably the most maligned class build uh, that there is out there on the internet. I don't have any actual data to show that, just the vitriol of the internet. Um, Skylar oh, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Skylar and Dan are Beastmaster Ranger supporters, and that's why I've brought them on today. Uh, I went to the great place to find hate uh, known as the internet uh, and got a lot of different opinions for people that, um, you know, about why they don't like the Beastmaster, why they think it is a class that is underpowered compared to other classes in 5th edition D&D and sort of what they want it to be, what it should be better than, what it should actually do. Um, so I think we're going to talk about that and I am going to provide some um, hey, people are saying this. What do you guys have to say about that? But I think first I want to talk a little bit about um, what you should do if you want to be a Beastmaster Ranger. And we opened with this question about beasts because Dan, before the pro- podcast, brought up a great point, which was that if you want to play a Beastmaster Ranger, you should really read about all of the beasts available to you. Dan, why don't you talk about that for a little bit first? Well, well that's the key. And I think that uh, the presentation of the Beastmaster and just the way it's set up is part of its downfall. So, you know, it talks about the Ranger's Companion and all the different actions you can use and, and the, the little fiddliness of the rules and how you enhance the beast. But there are no – nothing jumps off the page and says this is what a Beastmaster can do, right? So what you have to do is look into another book entirely. You have to go into the Monster Manual, into the Beast's uh, appendix in the back, and you have to kind of do all of that legwork for yourself. Um, I don't really have an alternative way that they could have done that. Maybe provide a few examples of some of the better beasts, but you'd still have to go and dig it up and, and kind of retool the stat block and figure out what you're working with. But that's the key, right? You have to go in and look at what the beasts can do and and then compare that to what you would do otherwise, right? So you also have to skip looking at the challenge rating zero beasts. Uh, God, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, if I had a dime for every time I saw someone complain that the hawk is a crappy beast companion, I would be able to buy lunch. But uh, <laughs> the, the, it just shows that people aren't looking through the entire beast section, which, I mean, I, I can understand that. That's kind of a lot of reading mm-hmm. to just figure out what your what your class does. Every other class, what it does is very well contained in the class itself. 
And then in the case of spellcasters, it's at least in the same book. Where, you know, you're playing a wizard. You can look up your wizard spells, see what they do, and get excited. Um, Beastmaster is spread out, and it's a little counterintuitive. You can't just look at it and go, aha, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> the hawk being a big example. I keep seeing people talk about, oh, I want to have a hawk, and this is terrible. Yeah, the hawk is a challenge rating zero monster. It's going to be terrible. Don't take it. They made a version of the hawk called the blood hawk that is much better on par with the other companionable beasts. And I think, and, and Skyler and I have discussed this before, it, it seems like it was made specifically to be a good hawk-like companion for rangers. It's like yeah. a tiny flying wolf. It is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that sounds awesome. I think one reason the hawk may come up um, is because it is the very first example beast they give in the Beastmaster description when they're talking about the Ranger Companion. That may be why people are, are going there immediately. And also, if you don't have a monster manual, you know, many players don't. They're They're probably looking through the appendix in the back of the player's handbook, which doesn't have as many beasts available. Um, but what's funny is the DM basic rules and the OGL SRD have all of the beasts available to you. So if you're a player who wants to play a Beastmaster Ranger but doesn't want to play a play buy a player's handbook, you still have options to get all of the beasts there at your fingertips. Um, so that's really great. And you can then, you know, maybe even print out a page and stick it in your player's handbook if you want to take it with you or, or that kind of thing since those things are free and available online. Uh, Skylar, what do you think people need to do first uh, other than read the Beastmaster's uh, various options for companions, for Beast Companions? What do you think they, they need to do uh, if they're going to play a good Beastmaster Ranger? Gosh, read the options for the Companions. Um, so this, this is not Beastmaster specific, but for Rangers in general, and I think it's something that the that it affects the Beastmaster class that people don't do this, but you need to look at the Ranger spells and figure out which ones are going to be useful and how for you. Yes, yes. Uh, that's a really big part of the power of the class, and if you don't do it, then you will tend to be underpowered if you're not using that feature. Also, you have to read, and this is something that too many people skip, the actual Beastmaster rules. Um <laughs> as the very first thing, which maybe that, that should be assumed, but yeah, so that's, that's what I'll put in though, is that you need to look at the, uh, the ranger spell list and then look at the spells and find out what they actually. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I do think the spells are an important part of the ranger that people seem to overlook quite a bit. Well, it's very easy for them to tunnel vision on hunter's mark because mm -hmm. that's kind of a, you know, it, it's unique to the ranger. Um, and it's kind of a bread and butter staple, uh, and people just latch onto it. They seize onto that. Um, there are a lot of really powerful concentration spells, uh, and most of them will synergize with the Beastmaster far better than Hunter's Mark, since your beast doesn't benefit from the mark. <clears throat> yeah, so it's especially it's important. Hunters also need to have a better idea of what their spells do than some people I've observed, and Beastmasters even more so. You're you're going to want to use your Ranger spells. Uh, to help you out. Of course. You know, yeah. that, that's something I didn't think about, that some people are maybe just looking at the player's handbook beasts. Um, and yeah, you're right. There's not... Yeah, the selection in there is the awful. Handbook. It's pretty much just... But even in there, like, the wolf is a good one. And yeah, I see why... 
now I get why I, I didn't occur to me that people were not even looking in the monster manual. Uh, and that's probably why they're ending up on Hawk because there aren't a lot of flying beasts in the player's handbook itself. You pretty much just got the Hawk, Panther, and Boar that are actually beasts you can use. Uh, but those would be the three from the, from the player's handbook if you're just going out of that for some reason. And all the rest of them are not really appropriate as beast companions. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing I would say is as a DM, you know, I allow people to reskin companions and stuff. So if you really want a panther, but you like the abilities of the wolf better, is there really that much difference if you just take a wolf with the same statistics and call it a panther? When you're talking about working with your DM, another thing, and if people get frustrated with, you know, there's a beast that I want, and like you said, you could reskin it and kind of change which, you know, animal goes with which stat block. For like one big omission that I'm kind of irritated about is there isn't a bear beast companion that you can have, uh, and that's of course something that rangers are naturally going to want to have is a is a a big bear buddy. Um, the other thing you can do uh, that I think people don't think about, and it's because it's sort of the realm of the DM, but you could make, you know, your own beast using the uh, monster creation rules that did something a little more, uh, you know, unique or like exactly what you wanted to do uh, by going through the DMG and, uh, you know, making something that meets the qualifications of the beast companion. And then you could maybe get something a lot closer to exactly what you want if you're, you know, depending on what your DM likes to do. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I think that's a really, really good advice is is work with your DM, um, you know, to, to get the story you want and mechanics that are effective. Uh, I think there's nothing really wrong with that. Uh, Dan, do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, along with the reskinning or customizing a beast, <clears throat> I believe one of the bears um, – would almost be an appropriate uh, companion, except it has multi-attack. Uh, so it, its damage output is a little too high, and that bumps it up to CR one half, which is outside of the range of what you can take for a companion. If you bear in mind that your beast isn't even allowed to use multi-attack, maybe see if the new damage bonus would drop that bear into the one-quarter challenge rating range. And if it would, then why not just let them use that? And, and follow the normal rules for using the beast. You yeah, know, and it's... if I'm arguing with someone on the internet, I'm not going to tell them, you know, take a beast that doesn't exist or, right. you know, take a beast that doesn't technically qualify. But as a DM, yeah, there's some more options that aren't, you know, in the monster manual that I would probably allow people to do. Well, let's actually, why don't we talk about uh, arguing with people on the internet? So, uh, and actually, I got some really, really great comments uh, from people who have, uh, who are great designers and who have also like been on the show. Uh, so it's kind of cool. I'm glad to, to share some, uh, some opinions with you. And these were things that a lot of people said, um, but I'm just going to call out various individuals. So, uh, at Zentarum PR, also known as Ben Heisler, uh, who has been on this show quite a bit. He's a, a big organizer of conventions and stuff in Atlanta. Uh, one of the things he said is, as a class feature, he feels like it's weaker than the Paladin's Find Steed spell. Uh, and I think it's one of those things, you know, Find Steed, you get a beast and uh, that's a mount and it boosts its uh, its intelligence up um, and you have a, a, an easier time controlling it and when it drops to zero hit points it disappears but you can cast the spell again to get it back you can communicate with it telepathically um, so you kind of have a, a steed 
bound by this spell, find steed. Uh, and I've seen that complaint that, like, you know, other summoning spells are better than having a beast companion, and it's the main feature of a beast master ranger. Uh, what do you guys have to say about that? Dan, why don't we start with you? Wow. Um, I actually hadn't encountered that one, and that's very startling to me. Uh, The fine steed works completely differently than a beast companion. Um, It's basically a Mm -hmm. non-combatant. Pretty much the only thing it's really good for is is the mobility, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Um, You know, it also costs you a spell slot, whereas the beast companion doesn't. Um, So the beast companion is going to have vastly more combat utility. I mean, just... Man, I, I feel like I'm going to jump into other internet complaints here talking about <laughs> this. Maybe we'll... Maybe we'll, we'll, well, we'll the the Fine we'll, Steed can... Uh, it can fight, but then it has to go on its own initiative. So, And right. generally speaking, they're riding it, so it's kind of awkward to do it that way. And also, it's once you get up at a little levels, it'll... Um, it, it can't fight. Uh, it can't take hits real well. Uh, so yeah, it's not really that combat oriented, whereas the beast master companion is going to throughout your career, uh, be able to fight things. Right. Uh, a beast master companion that you have chosen for combat is going to be superior to a, a found steed. Um, you know, a, a horse just doesn't have, it doesn't bring the same stuff to the table that say the giant poisonous snake or the wolf or the, the giant wolf spider, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, ooh, or the uh, the giant uh, frog, toad, toad, frog, frog. Which one is it? Which one's the medium? Frog. One? Toads can't frog. be a beast companion. They're too big. Right, right. Toads are big. <laughs> uh, of course, it's the giant frog. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just ridiculous. The giant yeah. frog can bite and restrain things. I mean, that is that is incredible. <laughs> Your horse can't do that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah. I don't but see the them as comparable. You don't add your proficiency bonus to hit and damage on the fine steed, and they never go up in hit points. Right. Yeah. The uh, the companions are going to have, in general, better armor class, better better attack bonus, better damage, um, and then all those other things that they bring to bear, like pack tactics and the knockdown and poison and spider climb and swim speeds, etc., etc., etc. On on top of all that. Beastmasters, in the form of their ranger spells, also get a spell that can act similarly to Fine Steed. Uh, it doesn't conjure an animal, but you can use Animal Friendship and Charm an animal. Uh, and that's going to be... And then, you know, what exactly would a charmed animal uh, do for you might be a little up to who you're playing with. But generally speaking, I would think you could get, like, a horse or a bear or whatever kind of animal you might find and have it working for you in a similar way to the fine steed mechanics in addition to your beast campaign. Absolutely. Uh, Animal Friendship is a fantastic spell. Gotcha. So what I hear you guys saying is you could ride a bear and have a blood hawk. Uh, which and a tyrannosaur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. why don't we move on to one of the more popular arguments, which I think is that, um, you know, you, when you command your beast to attack, you are commanding a beast to attack at, uh, you know, I, I, the complaint I often see is, you know, the, the beast will attack at a lower attack bonus and do less damage than you would if you just used a second attack yourself. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Uh, why don't we start with, uh, with you, Skylar? All right. So what I think about that is, so that, that's a hypothetical because we don't know 
what your stats are and what your B stats are. But generally speaking, um, so it, when you first get your beast at third level, and then as you go up uh, to fifth level, so like the lower level range, like third to fifth level, the beast is probably going to hit better than you do. Um, and depending on what it is, do more damage. But you have to go through and know exactly what beast you're talking about. Uh, so like a giant poisonous snake, for example, it's got, uh, uh, which is probably going to be my basic go-to of what well, it of would course. do. Yeah, it's, we should uh, definitely use it. It's your um, <laughs> Yeah. So it's, it's got dexterity 18, uh, and so it hits, its base to hit is plus six, uh, but then it is, uh, uh, you add your, your proficiency bonus to it. So when you first get it at third level, it's going to be plus eight to hit, and a typical ranger... Um, if it's a melee ranger, is gonna be about what plus five, I would think, yep. mm-hmm. and then like plus seven if they have the archery style and they're using uh, the bow style. Sure. Uh, so, right. So it's gonna be less if you're using like a wolf. Then it's only gonna be plus six to hit, but it'll have advantage on the hit because it has pack tactics. So both the examples we gave of the beast that we would pick hit significantly better than the ranger when you get it. Now, when you get to higher levels, uh, that might flip because you're going to get, it's harder to have a beast that has a magical item uh, and your, and its ability scores don't go up whereas yours do, but it will keep pace with your proficiency bonus. Um, So you, you, you probably eventually might hit better than the beast. Uh, If they have pack tactics, the beast is basically always going to hit better unless you also have advantage to hit. Once you get to like 10th and 11th level, then you're giving up one of your attacks for two beast attacks. So it's still going to be an attractive option to have the beast attack. Uh, Additionally, that sometimes you don't always have to attack with the beast. Uh, Just moving the beast around to stand different places is also effective if you're the one attacking and not it. Sure, yeah, it helps you, gives you a little more battlefield control, right? Um, Exactly. But I would just put forward, basic thing is on the numbers, when you first get the beast and going forward, it actually hits uh, really well um, and does a lot of damage. Like the giant poison snake is going to do D4 plus 6 damage plus 3D6 damage, which is more than a character does on an attack. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it's important people realize, right, you're adding your proficiency bonus Plus the beast has its own proficiency bonus, uh, you know, probably plus two that it's adding. So when you first get it at third level, right, you're adding your own plus two proficiency bonus. So right off the bat, before any abilities are added, it's got plus four. And then it also gets that proficiency bonus to damage, right? Um, Which you don't actually get to do as a uh, PC. You don't get to add your proficiency bonus to damage. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Uh, Yeah, very very much so. It's going to depend, you know, if you're picking a hawk, then yeah, you're going to hit better than the hawk, but that's because you chose a a poor beast companion. Uh, And and you're right, by the way, it is the very first one mentioned in the class feature, so that's a a paddling for Watsy. Like the... The, the setup and the way they presented the ranger class, I'm not going to defend that because it's not, no, not even very a little well bit. presented. But if you get to the actual mechanics and you look at it, it's not an underpowered class. It's just kind of a poorly laid out one. Uh, so the hit and damage, that's a big thing. Uh, another important thing is realizing what sort of carrier effects these attacks can can bring with them, like such as the wolf's knockdown. The uh, The panther has the pounce that can also cause a knockdown and give it an extra attack. 
um, the poison from the giant poisonous snake or the giant centipede or the, the giant wolf spider. Um, the, uh, the grapple and automatic restraint from the uh, giant frog. Uh, I mean, that's, that's huge. Just being able to restrain a foe at level three with your, your beast buddy. Um, that, that, that's pretty massive. And your own ranger sword or bow attack will not really be able to do anything of that nature. Um, P, you know, I've heard the similar complaint that people feel like they're clicking a remote control to make the beast attack. Um, and part of that, I think, is is just kind of the way they're looking at it. That's a bit of a perspective issue. Um, and, and then there's maybe some mechanical issues where they pine for the days of how Beast Companions worked in older editions. <laughs> um, and they forget that those were broken as hell and and could really destabilize the, the balance of a campaign um, dealing with uh, any sort of pet class. Uh, because once you add an entire creature worth of actions to a character's pool of available resources, that character's, uh, power and sort of value in combat shoots up exponentially. Um, so this is a mechanical concern to prevent that power creep from happening. So I understand it from, from that perspective. And I think people might just be grading because, oh, this is worse than it used to be. <laughs> and then they don't even bother doing all this stuff we just talked about, looking into what actually happens when your wolf bites someone. Um, and, and quite frankly, it's better than swinging your sword at them or in most cases shooting your bow. Right. I mean, you know. Yeah, that's so. I can think back to a time uh, in the third edition days where a cleric of Corellan Larethian had an awakened dire bear. Uh, and this was before level 10. Um, and it, <laughs> you know, that dire bear was not just the strongest character in the party. It was then also the smartest because he rolled an 18 <laughs> when he awakened it, you know, like, so you had a dire bear as smart as your wizard. That's certainly unbalanced. And, you know, then as a DM, I had to account for the fact that the bear was there, throw more monsters at them. Combat went longer, yada, yada. You know, the game starts yes. to sort of unravel and become unwieldy. If you're exactly, Beast is an extra. Yeah, so this wasn't this wasn't something you said, but I, I think the the Beastmaster mechanics where the beast action is part of your action, I actually think that's a really good design for it. I know a lot of people don't like it, but but yeah, having an entire separate character as your companion basically is it's much harder to design around than for it to be built into your action sequence. Um, and so I, so I, I, I liked that design setup. I thought it was, I, I thought, I think it works really well. Well, let me give you guys uh, a, a few more things from the internet here. So Dave Gibson, who is also a friend of the show, he's at the Indigester on Twitter. Um, you know, I like him a lot. He's, he's a pretty good designer. Uh, one of the things he's saying is that, uh, you know, he feels like the beast has low HP and the fact that you can't take a higher CR or larger creature as you progress like a bear makes it feel more like a lateral increase in power, like a way to do the same damage just in a different way as opposed to, you know, a vertical increase in power like the hunter where you're increasing the damage that you're doing constantly. So it, it is a vertical uh, increase in power of the beast because the beast damage goes up with its proficiency bonus uh, and it goes up because the beast gets two attacks uh, as you go up in levels. 
so so the amount that that it does that of damage that the beast does does go up and of course it gets more you know the hit points go up and then you know there's a question of is four hit points per ranger level enough uh and it's not really if you're imagining that the beast is going to be like uh some people describe it as like a tank like it or, or something, but I think that having a beast that was like harder to kill than a player character uh, would probably run into some balance issues. Uh, and I, you do have to strategically make them survivable because um, you can't just have them go in there and get mauled by whatever you're fighting. But that I think that's uh, uh, something that you can definitely do uh, depending on which beast you select. Yeah, and, and beast selection will have uh, a large impact on the survivability of your companion as well. Uh, one of my particular favorites, but that just kind of barely lost out to the wolf for a couple of reasons in the intro question, is the flying snake. The flying snake is an incredible beast companion. Um, this, this little CR 1 8 dude, um, what is he, speed 60 fly? Let me get to the page. 60, yeah, he's, he's speed 60 fly. Damage output too, right? Incredible damage output. It's only, and, and great to hit because again, it's got that 18 dexterity. Snakes, uh, serpents are by far the... Uh, blindsight. The, yeah, and blindsight. <laughs> you know, it's got the 18 dexterity. So when you take it at, at third level, its armor class bumps to 16, which is, you know, comparable to your starting fighter, right? Because they start with chainmail, you know, heavy armor gives them a sixteen. Um, they have the blind sight ten feet. So if you want to, you know, do one of those fun ranger spells like, oh, I don't know, fog cloud that creates heavily obscured area where no one can see. Your flying snake can zip in and bite people with advantage because it can see them and they can't see it with its plus eight to hit. It's uh, it's uh, you know, only one point of damage, but that bumps up to three plus three d four poison damage. And important caveat: there's no save on the flying snake's poison damage. So you just take that three d four and like it. Uh, and on top of all of this, it's got flyby, so it doesn't provoke opportunity attacks when it flies out of reach. So it can zip in, bite for a, a respectable pile of damage, and zip out and just straight out of harm's way. And the only way that they're going to do anything about that is if they can bring significant ranged attacks to the table, which, you know, again, can be hard to hit. Uh, or if they're, uh, you know, scrubbing their action to ready attacks to try and kill your snake, which people might overlook. Things attacking your companion is also a significant effect on a combat because those actions are not being directed against other PCs. Yeah, that is, that is definitely true. Uh, speaking of things, then attacking your companions, because I think you guys brought up all good points there in that last one. Does the low HP of the companion uh, worry you? So the, the way, just so we can define our terms here for people, the beast companion has it's normal hit points or four times your ranger level hit points, whichever is higher, uh, which means the max right it's ever going to have then is 80 hit points, um, which is significant, certainly, especially for a, you know, a beast that was once just a wolf or whatever, um, right. you know, but it, it certainly doesn't scale like a character does, which I think raises some eyebrows. Like what if you're caught in the breath weapon of an ancient red dragon at 20th level and then your beast is gone? you know and then you're you're not as effective uh i can see people's worry with that uh what do you think is a good way to address that concern uh one for me and i you know i'll take it even though i'm supposed to be 
being the part of the internet right now, um, <laughs> is sure. certainly your proficiency bonus being added to your armor class is a big help. Um, you know, I, I think like if we take that example of the snake, right by 20th level, it will have an additional six added to its armor class, which is pretty great, mm-hmm. which yep. means that 80 hit points plus a really high armor class is a good thing. Uh, what else, uh, do you guys have to say about that low hit point thing, Dan? The low hit point thing is a bit of a concern. Um, but I think that plays into your positioning and use of the beast. Skylar mentioned earlier that you have to kind of tactically work to keep it alive. And and I think that is absolutely true. Um, and I'll point out one of the other awesome features of the beast master, the exceptional training at seventh level, where your beast can do a bunch of stuff as a bonus action on your turn, uh, key among them disengage. So if it's having issues, you can get it out of dodge, right? Um, you know, if you're surprised by the ancient red dragon and your entire party gets hosed for 90 points of fire damage or whatever ridiculous amount of <laughs> punishment they, they throw out there, um, well, that sucks, but your wizard might be dead. So, <laughs> you know, uh, that sucks for everyone. And I'm going to chalk that up as a failure on the party's part for being in fireball formation near an ancient red dragon. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes there's just nothing you can do about that. Sometimes you get power word killed and you had 99 hit points and it's, it's over, you know, right. sure. we'll, we'll get to you in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and that, and that's a thing that can happen. You know, your companions and, and not just beast companion, though, those adventuring with you may fall in battle and you have to have a plan for that. Um, and it's not too terribly difficult to extend that plan to your beast companion. Uh, and then a tweak you can offer if you, as a player, are super worried about this, or if you, you know, if, and if your DM is sympathetic, a very simple tweak is allow the companion to make death saves and don't just have them outright dead at zero hit points. There you go, right? And that's, I think that's kind of a perfect way to do things. Is uh, you know, the the death saving throw is genius. I had not thought of that, uh, Skylar. What but do that you is think? A, that is a tweak, though. So, so yeah, so. I, I'm going to talk about this. That that is something that. Uh, so with with having the four hit points per level, I don't think that that makes it weak mechanically. But the problem is, so you can't, and this might come up later, but you can't switch your beast companion unless it dies. So that says to me, and I think a lot of people are going to play it this way, that their their beast companion, you know, it isn't just going to be, you know, meat shield number three. Um, it's probably going to be kind of like a, a care, you know, one that they, they plan on taking with them up through the levels. And yeah, as written, the way it is, if you if their beast companion just dies when it hits zero hit points, then you're probably going to cycle through some beast companions. Uh, and then, you know, you just get a new one uh, the next day. Or, yeah, if I were running it or playing, I would want to use the death saving throw system that the characters use uh, for the beast um, in order to kind of preserve the same one kind of as a role playing uh, consideration. Uh, and then, yeah, the the tactics. Um, so th- there's two ways to survive in D&D. One is to, you know, kind of be able to absorb hits. Uh, and you're always going to end up fighting something that's going to be able to do more than your character or whatever can do in terms of absorbing hits, uh, even if you're a pretty tough guy. Uh, the other way, of course, is to not get attacked, which is more like what wizards tend to do. Uh, and that's probably what you're going to do with the beast most of the time is try to make it so that they're not going to be the target of the attacks 
different ways, which is why I would probably favor beasts like the flying snake with the flyby attack or a giant poisonous snake that has the reach. Or if you have a wolf, you, you just got to be careful, um, you know, about exactly where you put them. Because, yeah, if you stick it right next to uh, a cyclops, uh, then the wolf isn't going to last very long. <laughs> no, he is not. <laughs> so would you guys say one of the things I'm hearing is like, if if you're talking about the beast, you know, obviously there's some other advantages. Uh, it makes it for an interesting story, an interesting character. You have some non-combat advantages, certainly, when you have a beast, too. Um, but since we're really looking at combat, since that seems to be people's main complaint yeah. with this class. Well, you know, Riley, brother, I do want to talk about that. I think that there's an over-focus on the mechanics of combat when they talk about the ranger class being underpowered because you know there's three pillars of the game and only one of them is combat and there's a lot of stuff that it does in the other two aspects particularly in the ranger class both in the, the beastmaster and the ranger generally where a lot of it's going to help with exploration uh or the social interaction part of it so, like, the beast, that, that's like a social interaction role-playing thing that it adds. You've got this companion who is, you know, who you're going to ascribe at different role-playing traits and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a, an interesting and valuable thing. Uh, and that's, that, that, you know, Beastmaster, that's the class I'm most interested in playing. And that's probably why, because it has, you know, a beast companion. And there isn't another class that has you know, a, a companion as part of its uh, class features. And then the exploration also, um, th there's a lot of stuff that the beasts do that doesn't, like once you're actually fighting and rolling the hit and all that stuff, it doesn't come in, but that it does really help the party and help you meet with some challenges. Uh, a big one that a lot of them have is your beast companion is going to have the highest perception quite possibly of anyone in the party, like passive perception. Uh, Cause if it has keen senses, it has advantage on perception checks generally, and it, if it's proficient in uh, perception itself, then it also adds your proficiency. So like a wolf is going to start when you get it, at, uh, its passive perception is going to be like 19, I think, uh, and other things are even a little higher. Um, and then you also have stuff like a badger has the ability to burrow, which can be useful in all kinds of different ways. Um, you've got your flying beasts. And just having something that can fly is a is a real game changer uh, at the lower levels. Um, uh, wolf wolf companion passive perception is uh, twenty, taking into account their keen senses. Andrew. Okay, twenty. Which yeah, that's going to be higher than you've got going uh, as the uh, ranger. And then a lot of the ranger class features don't directly impact combat but they're yeah they're more exploration geared and so if you're in a campaign like i run a game and there's a lot of exploration and a lot of the challenges the party faces aren't always combat challenges um they can be uh you know traversing and transporting stuff uh exploring uh and those are important challenges too and ones that the beast companion and also other ranger abilities uh like uh conjuring animals, uh, that kind of stuff, uh, play into. Uh, for a while, we were keeping track during that game of how many times during play someone said, man, I wish we had a ranger. <laughs> I think, uh, I think one thing, right, that I'm learning about the Beastmaster is 
if you are a player who wants to play a powerful character but doesn't want to have to read a lot or or necessarily pay attention to the tactics of the battlefield um which odds are then you're probably not the kind of player who wants to play something super powerful uh you're you're probably more in it for the fun in the story anyway but if that is the case uh if you are the small overlap in this venn diagram um then this is probably not the class for you you do it sounds like need to be able to prep pay attention to the battlefield do a lot of reading and research but that you can play a pretty awesome beastmaster like i'm getting jazzed up here i kind of want to make a uh you know a a bear riding snake hugging ranger yeah i want to talk about the spells because that's an overlooked thing and it's important and we've been talking a lot about the beast but if all you're doing is going around and you know you're a beastmaster so you don't have the little hunter abilities so your attacks are a little more basic and you've got your beast and that's all you're doing then you're gonna be underpowered and yeah you're probably better off with different character class but a, a lot of these spells um that the ranger has synergize and you can really take advantage of with your beast companion so dan already mentioned fog cloud goes really well with a lot of beast companions uh several of them have blind sight uh it also lets the beast even if they don't have blind sight kind of run in and run out without getting attacked and that helps with the hit point uh issue now i will say you need a little buy-in from your party because when i've been in a party i like spells like fog cloud but a lot of people kind of hate when you lay down the fog cloud but uh you know they can't stop you really (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's see being able to speak with animals that's another one i'll bring up so with exploration and social interaction that adds a lot to what you can do uh, in the campaign uh, to meet different challenges. If you can uh, speak with animals, send your beast to do stuff. Uh, animal messenger, that's another uh, first and second pillar one that is, is a pretty big game changer. Uh, Pass without trace, I'm going to mention because I haven't heard a lot of people, like they, 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 they bag on ranger, but they do get that spell, which is one of the most powerful spells in the game. Um, it's probably the best stealth spell that there is of any level, uh, and that gives your entire party a plus 10 to stealth checks, as well as they can't be tracked, which is sort of, you're not going to have to worry about getting tracked as often, but a plus 10 to stealth checks for the whole party for an hour is a, uh, especially when you're talking about if you have like an assassin in the group or anyone, you're, it's going to be a really key thing and give you a lot of options, uh, and rangers get that spell. Um, you well, know, I mean, with Pass yeah. Without Trace, you can take a party that's primarily heavy armor wielding, you know, wearing, you know, eight decks bricks, and now <laughs> have a really decent shot at surprising most of the encounters if you decide to utilize stealth. Or my uh, pass, and, yeah. You know, he and he mentioned uh, if you have an assassin in the party, assassins, everybody loves to talk up how much damage they can theoretically do in practice. I don't see them getting surprised where their assassinate ability comes into play all that often. Um, right. Using yeah, if you have a ranger them, buddy, but if it's the whole party, it's very difficult. Exactly. If you have a ranger buddy that gives your entire party plus ten to stealth checks, now you're looking at opening every combat with an assassinate. 
Yeah. And that's that's pretty heavy. Well, and even just just the power of surprise, particularly in fifth edition, is huge. When you know, when you are in a battle, think about when you're in a battle and you're the DM and all of your players get higher initiative than all of your monsters, you're not rolling for half of those monsters by the time right. that happens. You know, and that's exactly. what surprise is. Surprise gives you they all get to go for free when those monsters don't get to go. And then they might even get to go again before any monsters get to act, depending yep. on how initiative yep. shakes out. Yeah, and, and ranger spells can give you some fantastic battlefield control, like spike growth. Mm -hmm. You can create a big area that's going to shred anybody who tries to run through it or, you know, out of it if you cast it with them in their center. And then if you have something like a flying beast companion, say the flying snake or the bloodhawk with flyby, they can dart in, dart out and, and, the thing trapped in the spikes is going to have to tear itself to shreds getting out of there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm also going to throw out there. I should have mentioned this when we were talking about the hit points. Uh, so this is a little higher level thing. So when you're at that higher level, you share spells with your beast companion. So a spell like stone skin or um, freedom of movement that you're sharing with your beast is going to be really effective. Uh, yes, another, yes. and yeah, we keep, we don't have time. I don't know. Not necessarily unless it comes up to go through every single good ranger spell, but there's there's quite a few of them. Um, I'm going to throw out, though, God, what was it? Uh, plant growth is one that I don't hear talked about that's a really excellent battlefield control uh, spell. So I think it's a 100-foot radius. Uh, the plants overgrow, and then it for every one foot of movement you spend, it takes four feet of movement. Mm -hmm. So that will severely hamper a lot of the monster encounters that you face. And if you're a ranger who's like either ranged or you have freedom of movement on yourself and your beast, or the beast is flying, then you're going to be able to take really good advantage of that uh, happening. And there's and spike growth and other spells are like lesser versions of it. Wow. It's, it really sounds like too, if you're the kind of player who likes devastating combos uh you know there's there's kind of limitless things you can do with the control spells or with the stealth to kind of keep the dm on their toes and say like haha now i'm riding a bear and throwing winged snakes at a guy now i'm casting spike growth now we <laughs> oh, both have con yeah skin. conjure animals that's we should throw that out there too oh, all oh. that thing that spell is I, I think i think it's known that that's a really good spell but yeah, you can but conjure how many elk? Yeah. You, know, you know, you know, eight wolves, eight flying snakes, eight <laughs> giant poisonous snakes. <laughs> bunch of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Conjure animals is gonna. That, that's a that, yeah. Conjure animals really powerful spell. Beastmasters get it. They're gonna tend to use it more than hunters because hunters will probably be wanting to concentrate on hunter's mark, which is probably a mistake as they get to higher levels. But uh, but yeah, beastmasters are gonna want to conjure animals. Um, so, yeah, just big picture, though, a Beastmaster is, I would say, the best class out of all the classes as far as the combination of they can have a really high perception so that you don't get surprised by things, and they can also have blindsight going, and they can aid you in having a, the whole party having a really good stealth check so you can get a surprise round on things, and that's, that's a big difference in... Uh, in D&D, how you enter into the encounter, and Beastmaster specifically is probably the single best class at it. 
Well, I think, you know, I think within this conversation, we've addressed a lot of the concerns. I'm sure there are are certainly more out there. And I know people have some complaints about the Ranger overall. Myself included. Yeah, I'm (laughs) serious. I I wonder how much of a bad rap Ranger got just because it has that one ability that is not good. (laughs) Primeval awareness, yeah. 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 Well, so there is one one thing I do want to talk about, one other Ranger feature before we go, and it's because uh, Dan Dillon had a revelation yesterday on social media. Uh, it was about <laughs> the hide-in-plain-sight feature. Uh, Dan, let's talk about hide-in-plain-sight, because I think that's another oft-maligned Ranger feature. Uh, and you said, like, oh, I actually understand it now. I think I've been doing this right. Actually, yeah, th- this came out of a conversation with Skylar the other day. We we kind of realized that we'd been doing hide-in-plain-sight wrong, or at least looking at it wrong. Um, and uh, now this isn't a Beastmaster feature, of course. It's a it's a core Ranger feature, 10th level. Mm-hmm. Um, the basics of it is you spend, you spend a minute creating camouflage. You, know, you build a little impromptu ghillie suit or smear yourself with mud like Arnold and the Predator. And then, so after you cover yourself up with whatever natural materials of the terrain you're in, you can try to hide by pressing yourself up against the solid surface, uh, something that's at least as tall and wide as you are. And when you do that, you get a plus 10 bonus to your dexterity stealth checks as long as you don't move or take any actions. Uh, and it ends when you move or take an action or reaction. The way I was reading it originally was that you spend a minute building yourself a little duck blind and then you crawl into it and you hide. So that is of extremely limited usefulness, and it's basically only good for setting ambushes when you know exactly where you need to be to set the ambush. That's not how it works. I mean, that's not what it says, and that's this is something that Skylar pointed out to me, and it uh, it changed everything about this feature. You can spend your minute creating this camouflage, and then later, whenever you need to, you can just press yourself up against a wall or a tree or a rock and disappear. Now, it doesn't change the hiding rules in that you can't do it while someone's watching you. But say if you shoot someone and run around a corner and there's nothing to hide behind, you can just press yourself up against a tree and you're gone. When you couple this plus 10 bonus with, say, that pass without trace, you're at plus 20 to stealth checks. Uh, Nothing is going to see you. (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean, this is this is a really, really useful ability to to just be able to drop an impromptu hiding spot in the middle of combat. And, and then and then if you combo it up with something like the Lightfoot Halfling, who can uh, hide if they have cover behind a, a, a larger creature, say, you know, your fighter pal uh, or the Wood Elf, who can do the same thing as long as they're in some sort of naturally occurring light uh, obscurement. That has a lot of use, and uh, and and I had uh, yeah maligned it uh, quite severely because I misunderstood how it worked. <laughs> so I think that's a that's a cool thing that you guys have figured out, and certainly with the bounded accuracy system of fifth uh, edition plus twenty two, anything is godly. Uh, you know that that is incredible and amazing, and we've already talked about the amazing power stealth has. Uh, you know, and and surprise within the game. So um, yeah, it's also so in previous editions, stealth was a little less valuable. That like like your stealth bonus would. Or the equivalent uh, than uh, it is in this edition, because in this edition, because you have stuff like invisibility that you know made it a little irrelevant. 
uh, in this one, invisibility doesn't actually, you know, you'll still be invisible and they'll have disadvantage to hit you, but it doesn't actually hide you per se. That's all based on your stealth check. So the plus 10 and for either thing and the ability to have a good stealth check is even more important uh, than it has been previously. Because in this one, you can't just magic a big stealth check. Unless you use, you know, um, well, um, this has been an awesome conversation and I will say that you have made me a believer certainly in the Ranger and in its Beastmaster build. Uh, I really kind of, uh, I have a few, a couple of games that I am running or ending and somebody else is going to take over and I'm trying to think about what I want to play and maybe I'll give the, the Beastmaster a go. Um, I'll just throw this out there real quick. Consider playing a small Beastmaster who can then ride a Vulture or a Pteranodon. Whoa. Yeah, and I didn't mention that because I think that is something that people don't align <laughs> about the Beastmaster. But it's worth noting for those of you who don't know, yeah, if you're a small Beastmaster, <laughs> and then, yeah, there's a couple beasts that you can ride and you can take mounted combat, and then people and then aren't allowed can't to attack, attack your beast. And they, so that's uh, that also, if you're really worried about them being durable, then those beasts you can't really be killed until they go through you first. I had not thought of that, so I am glad we shared that little tidbit as well. Um, so let me uh, let me throw this out there. If people want to find you on the internet, I almost hesitate to say this. Uh, <laughs> uh, where can Bring they it. find you? Uh, Dan Dillon, let's start with you. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, <laughs> Daniel.Dillon at Facebook. Um, I'm on the uh, the Dungeons & Dragons 5th uh, Edition Facebook discussion group. I try to be pretty active on there. So uh, come along and say hi, and I'll be happy to debate the Beastmaster with you or whatever in general. Um, I'm on Twitter, at uh, Dan underscore Dylan underscore one. Uh, and then you can catch some of my work with the Four Horsemen at uh, fourhorsemanofficial.com, also Four Horsemen Official on Facebook. Yes, congratulations on your successful Kickstarter for the Talented Bestiary, by the way. Thank you very much. That is uh, that is something else. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for that. Uh, and uh, Oh, yeah, Talented Bestiary, I can't, I want it, that, the only thing that I want to buy more than murders and acquisitions is the talented bestiary. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. Skylar, after that, you are welcome back anytime. Uh, Where can people find you? Uh, So, so yeah, I'm on, I I mean, I'm on Facebook. I I don't have a huge online presence. I'm pretty low tech. Like you're talking to me. I'm I'm sitting here. I'm surrounded by like physical books and all our D and D stuff is like on handwritten notebook paper um, (laughs) and that kind of stuff. But yeah, uh, Skylar Esau, uh, you, can probably figure it out on Facebook. I don't know that there's a lot of Skyler Esau's. S C H U Y L E R E S A U. And I'm in that stupid fifth ed group also <laughs> that I, I refuse to plug because it's asinine. Um, uh, I don't have a Twitter account. Uh, if you want to send me mail, it's 1411A Handball Lane, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46260. And I welcome. Letters all right back. Nice, nice. Yeah, most people don't know this, but Skylar is actually talking to us via ham radio. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty great. Uh, Skylar, thank you for coming on the roundtable today and talking about the Beastmaster. It was wonderful getting to know you. Hopefully you'll, you'll come back and talk about more uh, awesome stuff with us some point.
Oh, sure. Anytime. All right, guys. Well, uh, thank you both for being on. I really appreciate it. And now let's uh, roll my interview with Craig Campbell. All right, everybody. I am now here with the one and only Craig Campbell. Craig, welcome to the roundtable. Thank you for having me at the roundtable, James. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to it actually for quite a while. So <laughs> I'm here. Looking forward Woo! to it too. Yeah, you reached out a, a little while ago, maybe about a month ago or so. Something um, like that. Because you have this awesome, awesome Kickstarter, murders and acquisitions that we are going to talk about. But before we dive into that, sure. tell the listeners out there a little bit about your background in tabletop RPG design. Um, all right. Well, I started playing RPGs um, in the freshman year of college, so 20-ish years ago. Um, well, geez, more than that. Wow. Getting old. Um <laughs> But it was it was like right toward the uh, end of the first semester, and I played one game, and then so that summer I just went home and I devoured the the D and D rules. Um, I played a Ravenloft game first time out, and uh, came back and you know just started playing a lot, playing here and there. Um, you know, just went on through college, post college. I started I uh, got my first writing gig um, for Living Greyhawk for the High Folk region in the first year of Living Greyhawk back in like nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. And uh, uh, just I wrote a few things here and there, mostly for D and D and the RPGA. Um, kind of over the next decade or so, um, about seven years, the best thing that ever happened to my freelance career happened when I got laid off from my day job, oh, and nice. su- suddenly had uh, a need for supplemental income. And so I started, you know, running my name off the flagpole with the handful of people that I knew, and that kind of just uh, blew up into just kind of a, a regular stream of, of freelancing for about five years or so. Um, and that kind of trickled out when uh, fourth edition uh, kind of late uh, went into uh, less rule book stuff and more set or uh, more system agnostic kind of stuff. Um, so they weren't freelancing as much for like Dungeon Online and Dragon Online. And so I said, okay, well, here's now's the time. If there ever was a time, now's the time to take a stab at my own game. Um, and so that's kind of where that went. And, you know, so two and a half years ago, I started in on murders and acquisitions. Um, and I've, I've written for d and I've written um, done d- design work for Gamma World, a little bit of Pathfinder. And uh, recently, just kind of here and there, a little bit of work for Iron Kingdoms. Oh, nice, nice. That is an extensive resume. You know, we got to get you back. Uh, we do a, a podcast called Gamer to Gamer where we really dive deep into somebody's history. Mm-hmm. And I would love to dive deep into your history because uh, you have worked on so many awesome, awesome properties and you've worked with so many great people uh, who we're going to talk about because a bunch of them are working on this Kickstarter with you as well. Yep. Um, but let's let's dive into right now your baby. Murders and acquisitions. Uh, this is, first of all, congratulations. You are funded. Now you're going for stretch goals. So I recommend people who are listening to this podcast right now go to Kickstarter and search for Murders and Acquisitions RPG, or they head over to the tomeshow.com and find the link to the Kickstarter in the show notes for this episode because it's going on right now, people, and you are definitely not going to want to miss out on the, uh, on the love and everything that people have for this Kickstarter. <laughs> So, uh, so first, congratulations on that. Uh, what is murders and acquisitions? Oh, I'll just read right off the RP, uh, the Kickstarter page. But it's you know it's the tagline for the game. Murders and acquisitions is a like a tabletop RPG of espionage, subterfuge, intrigue, theft, and murder in an absurd corporate world. Um, so it's you know it's a, a corporate world that's you know similar to. Um, 
our own here on real world earth, but everything's um, a little bit bigger, a little more over the top, more cutthroat. Everybody, you know, all the characters are more devious and they're, they're backstabbing their way to the corner office, literally pushing people down elevator shafts, destroying people's reputations, um, stealing whatever they have to in order to rise up the ladder. So uh, there's certainly a, a level of kind of tongue in cheek uh, humor to it that, you know, that it's, it's, it's riddled through with a, a bit of hyperbole to kind of, you know, just have fun with it. Um, so it, it's a lighter game in that respect as, as far as the, the, the style of the game and the kind of the thematic elements of the game. And it's also a lighter game in terms of the rule set. Um, you know, I developed my own rule set and kind of kept it simple enough that um, it's easy to pick up. Uh, and it's especially, you know, you, uh, worthwhile um, as a game for a one shot because you can pick up the rules very quickly, very easily. Um, but there's enough complexity there that you can, you know, you can have some fun with the dice at the table, but it's not in, in a terribly robust, um, <laughs> dense game system. It sounds like a, a really, really great game. And I kind of want to get my old coworkers from my corporate job together and, and play it with them. <laughs> uh, it really does. Uh, people should definitely check this out. The art is amazing. I feel like you, you're really going for a very specific tone here. The video is great. Um, you know, I, I, and I feel like you've really, really captured that. Uh, so what is, uh, let's, let's get into the mechanics a little bit before we get more into the feel of the game. Uh, sure. Mechanically, how are things resolved? Are we using dice? Are we using cards? Uh, is there nothing? Is it like amber? What are we? What are we working with here? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, it, it's traditional in that it's um, uh, you know a dice mechanic, um, and it's pretty straightforward. It's it's really a two dice add them together compared to a target number. Uh, there's twelve skills in the game. Every skill is very broad based. It's kind of a big umbrella of a whole bunch of things. Um, so there's just the twelve of them. Each is rated with uh, a die type from D4 to D12. Higher, higher is better. Um, so when you make a skill check, you roll your skill die plus an additional D6 called the synergy die. You add those two together and you compare the result to a target number. Um, and it's like the, the baseline target number for a moderate task is seven and it, it progresses up there um, as high as 15 for really incredibly uh, difficult tasks. Um, and then the entire system, you know, all, all of the, uh, well, I guess, uh, everything's contained within the one die roll. So you're not rolling this, you know, rolling to hit and then a damage roll. And then, a, you know, there's a soak roll and whether there's a saving throw and all this. The way it works is um, if you're successful on your check and you roll a six on the synergy die, that D6 that you roll with everything, um, then you get a boon and something, you know, you do better. You deal more damage or you uh, hack the computer faster or whatever. And if you <laughs> fail on the check and you roll a one on the synergy die, you, uh, you suffer a botch and something terrible happens to you. And the GM describes that. And then you have to deal with that uh, in, in subsequent turns. And I think uh, one of the things that I had read, you have all these great quotes from some pretty uh, well-known game designers, including Rob Schwab. Um, he, he says that there are several neat tricks to make task resolution more than just pass-fail, which I love. I love to see that in a game that it's more than just you succeed, you fail. Could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, well, that's that's uh, primarily what I, what I was talking about just now with with the uh, you know you you can you can succeed or you can succeed better you can fail or you can fail really terribly, <laughs> um, and um, you know and there's other ways that you can uh, there's you have a limited pool of resources called synergy points and those points can be spent you you, you know you spend them across the cor uh, the course of the game session you gain more as you play. Um, there is an upper cap, so you're encouraged to spend them because you can't gain more than a certain number. 
And, um, you know, you can use those points for a number of things. And one of the things you, you know, a couple of the things that you can use them for is you can, once you've succeeded, you could even attach a boon by spending a synergy point. You could decide, okay, well, I, you know, just for simplicity's sake, let's say it's a combat thing. Well, I, I hit a character in combat, but I spent a synergy point and I also knock them backward or I knock them down or, um, you know, I disarm them in the process or whatever. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, those synergy points can be spent on a number of different things too, including gaining an extra synergy die. <clears throat> and instead of just taking, rolling the two dice, you roll three dice, and but you take the better of the two synergy dice. So you're still only adding two dice together. Um, and there's a few other things that you can use the pool for. So there's, there's like I said, there, you know, there's enough complexity that you can kind of have some fun with it. And the synergy pool is intended to to uh, be useful for a number of things. It's not strictly a dice rolling perk. There's other ways to spend those points as well. Nice, nice. So you talked a little bit about the feel of the game when you were describing it. Uh, let's uh, let's delve deep into this um, because I see, you know, obviously you've got a lot of fun corporate espionage, kind of brutally climbing the ladder uh, things going on. Is this the kind of game, uh, you know, is this only good for a one-shot? Can I play a longer campaign with this kind of thing? Uh, and if so, uh, what should I expect the, the feel of either a one-shot or a a longer campaign to be like um well you can play uh, you can certainly play a one shot it's it's suited very well to a one shot because of the simplicity of the system and the easy um understandability of the world you know it's not a world that's super dense that you have to know a ton of information about in order to really enjoy and that you know those there's those worlds are great but they're a little you know you have to be like a long time gamer of some systems in order to enjoy even enjoy a one shot and because you just don't know enough about the world. Um, whereas this is, you know, it's like, oh, it's our world, but everybody's crazy and killing each other um, in, in, in corporate offices. Um, and as far as campaigns go, uh, yeah, absolutely. You can play a campaign. It's not designed as a game that you would play like a super long campaign. You're not going to play this game for a year and a half. Um, it's, you know, I think it, it, you could go as long as, long as 20 sessions um, across the, the the whole character progression, but that's very slow. I think the the sweet spot is probably somewhere in the eight to twelve range, where you could play you know ten ish sessions um, that would start your character at like we just start you know just got hired and you're you're the group of characters kind of all want to go move up the ladder together, but they know they can't do it alone. They need to have somebody to walk uh, watch their back, so they they team up um, and they work their way through um, the ranks that way. And you know you could end it. In, in 10, 12 sessions with um, overthrowing the, um, the top executives or the board members of the company and taking over. And of course, you know, um, or maybe even get that, get to that point a little bit early and the GM could say, okay, well now you're at the top of the ladder and everybody's gunning for you. So now you have to defend your position um, and, and run a couple of sessions where you have to, you know, play king of the hill right. now that, now that you're king. Right. Um, and so, uh, like an, in, an individual session, like a one shot would be, you know, you'd, 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 uh, synthesize one of one step along that corporate ladder climb. It could be, you know, we're going to have, um, a, an adventure that's built around, um, destroying a person that, you know, just, just destroying a rival at the company where you work. You've got somebody that's kind of in your way. They're causing problems for you. So you're going to get rid of them one way or the other. You could do an adventure that's built very much around um, espionage and spying where you're trying to get information on people to, uh, to, 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 to feed to somebody else or to, to use to bribe or whatever. You could, it could be a, th a theft scenario where you're you know, stealing a prototype of, of some piece of electronics to you know, either from another company 
to use at your company and gain clout, or you're going to steal it from your own company and take it to another company um, to get in good and, you know, and get a better position there. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could go with it. And the systems, you know, certainly, you know, it is called murders and acquisitions, and I understand that. <laughs> and there's there's a fair bit of graphics that refers to that kind of thing. Um, but the system is is not... It, it doesn't lend itself to just one style of play. I mean, the, the skill, the, the the base of skills across which you can, you know, you play your character. There's there's social stuff, and there's there's all sorts of you can do stealthy stuff, and there's there's a skill that's specifically geared toward cleaning up the messes and not getting caught. Oh. Um, and you know that doesn't have to be a killing. That could be a theft. <laughs> um, that could be you know searching for something in particular in a room, um, and making a gigantic mess, and then just having to put it all back the way it was to make sure nobody realized you were there yeah. and, you know, and wiping the computer record or the, uh, the camera records of the, you know, the video camera that was watching you the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, so is there a, is there a way you level up here? Is that, do you level up by like climbing the corporate ladder? Uh, or is it, um, you know, is it a more traditional, you gain experience points and you level up or do you just create a character and that's what you got? Uh, well, you create a character. It's, it's a point by system. Um, so you start with a set number of character points and you spend those across your skills and a few other things. And then, uh, as you gain, as you, as you, uh, complete stories or adventures or whatever, whatever you wish to call them, um, you'll gain additional character points and you can spend those on a few different things, primarily on, on your skills, but you can, there's other things to spend them on as well. And, uh, and you just kind of work your way up like that. So it's, you can create a character that has a variety of skill sets. There's not specifically, you know, it's not a level-based thing where, like, when you gain third level, you get this skill or this right, right. perk or whatever. Um, you know, you can you can mix and match however you want. You can be highly specialized. You can be jack of all trades, um, oh, nice. and anywhere in between. So, could you uh, could you play? Let's say you wanted to play one of those games where you know, about, uh, almost towards the end, you you make it to the top. Um, is there? Uh, is it encouraged to maybe sometimes, as you're climbing the corporate ladder, stab your own? Uh, your friends in the back, your party members, that kind of thing to, uh, to get higher on the ladder. Why does this question come up every time I talk about the game? Um, okay. PVP is, is not, um, encouraged. Well, it's not discouraged. Oh, nice. It's not, it's not, it's neither. It's not encouraged. It's not discouraged. Um, you know, I understand that, uh, you know, some people will want to play the game that way. And if, if that's the social contract they have at the table and that's how the players want to do it, go for it. Um, go after each other, start rolling the dice, you know, but it is, it is, uh, you know, the, the, the core conceit of the game is to have this group of people around you that you, you can trust because you can't trust anybody else. Um, so you do have a, you know, a traditional adventuring party as it were. <laughs> um, but there's also a middle ground in there. There's a set of, uh, there's a, uh, um, an alternate rule, an optional rule, I guess, um, that's called intraparty conflict, where if you don't want to go full on, you know, guns a blazing at each other, you can uh, play with this uh, optional rule where you just kind of screw with each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. And what happens is at the beginning of each session, every player decides that their character hates somebody else in the group and really, really likes somebody else in the group. <laughs> I like um, that. At least a minimum of one, and then everybody else that they choose not to, they're they're ambivalent toward. Um, and during the course of the of the, that particular session, um, you uh, you gain some bonuses when you help the person that you like because you're you're motivated to do that. So there's a little you put a little extra effort into helping out the person that you're you're, you're liking right now. So if a person if the person that you hate um, 
fails or embarrasses themselves, you can benefit from that. But in order to gain the benefit, you have to declare to the group that that's the person that you hate. You have to make it clear. You can you, you, you can do it just as a player, or you can incorporate it into the you know character role playing where you you make fun of the person or something, and then you gain the benefit. And now you've revealed that you have a problem with this person, and that colors the the character interactions for the rest of the session. Oh, this sounds like so much fun. Uh, <laughs> um, and then every and then every session you you reset those. You can do oh, them differently because nice. just like you know, I, I can't stand you today because you took my parking spot. You know, the next day I can't. You know, you're ticking me off because, you know, you uh, you were over there schmoozing up at the boss and claiming to do something that, uh, you know, I was actually responsible for. You know, or, or, or it can be, you know, real <laughs> good reasons. <laughs> it doesn't have to be petty stuff. But petty <laughs> stuff is fun. <laughs> so is the – in the assumed, uh, you know, alternate world, um, is it sort of modern times, you know, iPhones and people checking their email from uh, their vacations in Cancun and, and that kind of thing? Uh, are you able to sort of mess with the time period? Like if you wanted to make it more like – 80s with big cell phones and, and that kind of thing, or, or you know, uh, 70s, everybody wearing skinny ties or whatever. Is is that an option? I, I, did, I didn't think a great deal about taking it to a different um, era, although you, you, when I think about it, you could, you certainly could. I mean, there's things, things are pretty general in describing a lot of what's going on in the game, so there's not necessarily a bunch of stuff that's that's absolutely required that you like, you know. Like the equipment list. Here's here's the deal with equipment. This game is not um, a game of accounting for all of your equipment. There's such a thing as as exceptional equipment, and you can gain access to certain things that kind of break the rules or do better than the standard rule, standard rules was. But generally speaking, your character is assumed to have in their possession everything that a character in your position would have, um, and as well as anything that your character's role would dictate you have. So if you're the hacker in the group, you've got a really high-end laptop with, with some preset algorithms and, and some, you know, good, uh, um, anti-intrusion software, um, to protect yourself. And it's just kind of assumed that you've got the right equipment for the job. So, I mean, you could certainly take it to the seven, you know, or, or to, to, as an example, take it to the eighties and, you know, instead of having a cell phone, you know, maybe one person in the group has a big brick phone in a bag, um, you know, one of those, <laughs> those monsters. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's nothing to prevent that. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of open-ended. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It, I mean, it looks really, really cool. Um, and you've already unlocked some stretch goals here. Mm -hmm. uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about those? Because those add things like monsters and magic uh, to the game, uh, which really does seem to make it even more kind of modular than it already inherently is. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the monsters and the magic. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to create... Um, you know, since the since the core rule set is relatively straightforward, and the world is actually relatively straightforward, I you know, for to be honest, when I started writing the you know the setting description, I got to about three pages and said, "Yep, that's about it." You know, it's like here's the core differences between the real world and this one. There's not much else to say. Um, and then I described a series of companies, so you have like backdrops that you can play in. Um, and so I started thinking, well, you know, this is playing in the real world. With just you know, with nothing fantastic, that that's a that's a tough sell with some players. So there's plenty of games out there that take the real world and just and twist them around. And like, let's see what that would look like if this game world had that twisted around. So I I developed a series of modular optional add-on rules that you can mix and match them however you want to add these different things in there to 
add more fantastic elements to the game world. It's assumed that it's still the modern day, um, that the corporate culture is still the way it is, but magic is real. Or there are monsters, or both. Or there's um, like uh, future tech stuff, like cyber technology that's, that's become available. Um, and they're actually all listed um, now. That, you know, the one after future tech, that's the stretch goal we're going for right now. Um, and then after that comes cosmic horror where you can actually, you know, you can play at a, use dark magic and you can play, you know, you're, you're working at a, at a company that has made a pact with some horrible being from the, you know, beyond the edges of our reality. Um, and then of course the, 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 the last one, um, is, uh, not really the best one for a long-term campaign, but it can be a fun way to wrap up a campaign, which is to bring about the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually uh, that reminds me kind of of, of Angel. Uh, so I feel like that's what the <laughs> evil corporation there was trying to do. Was, was yeah, that's that's I've, I've I've mentioned that to people before. Is you could take the the core the core game, throw in uh, some of the spell casting, a few choice monsters, and a little bit of cosmic horror to represent the senior partners, and you could play <laughs> lawyers at Wolfram and Hart. Oh, that's so awesome! I love that. I love that a bunch. Uh, and you've also uh, you've got some other. Other uh, great stretch goals on here that you have not yet achieved: uh, future tech, cosmic horror, apocalypses, and mutations. Uh, let's talk about mm-hmm. those a little bit. Uh, well, future tech uh, is uh, every chapter has something for players and something for GMs. It's, you know, it's intended to. It, now it varies a little bit um, where you know which one gets the most treatment. Um, but future tech, primarily, you know, with players, it, it gives you um, cyber technology. Um, which is actually, you know, that's equipment that, you know, is attached to you and integrated into you that, so it actually has specific rules for each of the pieces. And there's also a little bit of nanotechnology, um, that you can be, you know, you can have a nanotech treatment that gives you some, some perks. Um, and these are all things that you purchase with your character points. You know, any of, any of the character stuff that comes out of the stretch goals is just part of your character point pool. So as you build a character, instead of taking some skills, you take some of this other stuff. So it, it balances itself out. You don't have as many skills. So you aren't as, as competent or as varied in your skill set, but you've got these other cool little things you can do. Um, cosmic horror is um, it you know it, it builds on the spell casting rules where it adds a dark spell um, um, called manifest horror, where in order to use that spell you actually have to be worshiping a cosmic horror, a, you know a Cthulhu style monster. <laughs> um, and you can manifest a bit of that cosmic that cosmic horror's presence. As a as a dark spell, um, there's a little there's there, there's some magic items in there that are kind of avatar or they're uh, they're uh, artifacts. They have you know they do some cool stuff, but they have a really bad downside to them. They they hurt you quite a bit in the process. Um, and then there's monsters and there's a company um, with apocalypses and mutations. Um, there's a couple of you know two different types of mutations. There's like little minor ones that are just kind of simple, and then there's more complex things. Um, and so you can take either one of those. You can mix and match a little bit if you want. Um, and then there's um, a whole discussion on a number of different types of apocalypses. And yes, I had to learn what the plural of apocalypse oh, was. Apocalypses. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it talks about um, you know a, a number of different type of apocalypses and how you can integrate those into the game and how players might react to that because it it the apocalypse shifts the players you know or the characters. Um, focus quite a bit because it's not so much now about climbing up the corporate ladder as it is about you know survival and securing resources and everything but there's nothing to say that you couldn't 
you know, your, your whole little group of people that's surviving the apocalypse together could just be you and your former employees. And so you still have all the same animosities and grudges that were held. And you might even have a governmental structure that mimics the corporate structure when you try to reestablish your own little mini society. Um, and then, uh, and then there's apocalyptic monsters. And that's the chapter that I actually even added, like, uh, dangerous normal animals. Like, because that's when, you know, the apocalypse is when everything gets out of the zoo, right? <laughs> so tigers and, and uh, bears tigers and stuff bears like that. And there's a shark in there. And there's, uh, <laughs> yes. there's a, you know, there's some of the smaller stuff, too, that's a little more easily handled, like, uh, you know, birds of prey and, and uh, wolf. And, and so there, there, there's a handful. Not, none of these chapters is g- gigantic. The monsters chapter is pretty big because there's a lot of monsters. In each, and a monster, the monster stat blocks get a little long because there's, a, you know, monsters can do a lot of stuff. The, each of the rules chapter, each of the, the optional chapters are pretty compact. Like here's like here's some cool stuff you can do. It's not you know forty pages of additional stuff. That's a, a a really fun mechanic to bring into a game. So it sounds like you can sort of play it if you want to play it very straight. You know, uh, real world. Uh, well. "Quote unquote real world, right? Sure. Um, you know, with, without a lot of magic, monsters, apocalypses, that kind of thing. Uh, you have that option, but then you have the option to weave this stuff in, and the fact that it would be a shorter campaign or a one shot means you can try a lot of different uh, styles with murders and acquisitions, right? Sure, absolutely, and you could because uh, none of the the, the the optional chapters needs to be there." If you're going to use it, it doesn't need to be there from the beginning. You could introduce that stuff later. You could start a game where everything seems normal, and now all of a sudden the characters raid this tech company and they discover, holy geez, these people are like jamming technology into their bodies, and you introduce the cyber tech rules. And moving forward, everybody has access to cyber tech rules because they get a hold of some chop doc that's willing to, you know, uh, set them up and, you know, and, and hook something into them in, in, in the basement, you know, in a completely unsterile <laughs> environment um, or, or, or whatever, you know, how, I mean, you, you could, you can mix and match it however you want. Nothing, uh, nothing has to be there from the beginning. Nothing has to even be there at the end. Nice. Nice. That's really, really cool. That's great that it's super easy to, you know, weave new rules in as you go. It makes the possibilities then for, uh, you know, for, for the story you can tell even greater, right? That you could start with one and, and go for another, or maybe, you know, maybe there's future tech, right? You're starting with some future tech and all of a sudden there's a rival spellcasting firm who shows up. Uh, exactly. You sure. Weave that in. That's, that's great. I love that. Or, you know, <laughs> it, it turns out that uh, the the guys across the street are all actually uh, in a company that's run by Cthulhu, right? Like, there's all kinds <laughs> of fun options there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the the wonderful people who are working on this with you. Obviously, they've got you. Um, you know, you're no slouch when it comes to game design. You've got a lot of awesome credits, and also working with you are a lot of other awesome people. Let's uh, let's give some shout outs, shall we? Um, okay. Well, there's there's going to be a lot of people on this list that people out there who are backing or, or, or checking this out aren't going to necessarily recognize their names. Um, some there are, there are people that are brand new to working on RPGs, and then there are people that are longtime veterans. And um, you know, I picked and chose uh, people for a number of reasons, and I des- I decided early on that since this was my first shot doing this, my first try at doing this, and I was going to be bringing people on board anyway. Um, I thought. 
why not give um, at least a good number of people who've never worked on a project like this before the chance to, to try something out? So I talked to some friends and some people that I know who did a little bit of freelancing here and there and asked them if they wanted to contribute. And, and, and I had some people jump at that. Um, you know, I've got a few good friends who just they, they really are very supportive when I put out a call. Um, to to kind of help out with some things, mostly just to alleviate my workload because I was juggling so many things and wearing so many hats. I had a couple people that said, hey, I'll learn how to, you know, like my friend Andy said, I'll learn how, to, I'll figure out how to create a form fillable PDF so you can have a character sheet that someone can fill out digitally. And so he did that. Um, I went looking for artwork primarily through um, freelancer websites where there's just, you know, piles of people that are just, you know, part-time or full-time freelancers and they're just looking for things to work on. And I posted the project and I had a bunch of people respond and I spent, there was, there was a point where I spent about three weeks sifting through about 60 people um, to get down to the seven or eight that I've used. And, um, you know, using them, you know, each of them for their, their own particular um, there's, there's some variation in styles, although it's all kind of in the same general realm of, uh, of realism. Um, and, you know, just as far as how, is, how it looks um, for editorial work, I knew I wanted, I, I, I went to Chris Sims who has worked. Um, that's a name that people will recognize. He works, uh, worked a lot for uh, wizards of the coast. He was an employee there. He's, um, he's, oh, yeah. he's out that's on his great. own now. Um, he's done a ton of design development and editing work. He was instrumental in just chipping apart the, the rule set, the whole, the first couple chapters to make sure that everything was going to read well. And so he did a lot of, uh, uh, he, he provided a lot of help there and edited with that and, you know, with a few other things. And then Carol Darnell, who is, um, uh, she works primarily for third eye games, mm. um, in, in editorial there. She, uh, helped with some of the other stuff, um, as far as editor work goes, you know, and just kind of people here and there, the guy who wrote a little piece of fiction is, is just an incredibly well-read and well-read, well-read <laughs> and well-spoken individual. Um, who came up with a, just like a little neat piece of micro fiction to put into the into the book that's kind of inspired by the game, um, and and so it's 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 a toolbox of of rules. It's it's my chance to start to try out a lot of different things. Just a, a, a toolbox of skill sets for me to to develop, and it's a toolbox of contributors. Um, you know, just a wide variety of people that got a chance to to help out. That's really, really great, and it's awesome that you have all of these great people who have done great things working with you, but also that you're giving new people a chance to shine. Uh, you know, that is some great, great work that you're doing for people because it's a lot of people's dream to work on an RPG, and you're helping make that come true, Craig. Uh, so you're the man. <laughs> I am the man, aren't I? Oh, that's a little bit big-headed. Okay, I'm... I'm I'm a little bit of a man. That's better. <laughs> well, I think you should feel proud because, like we said, this is already funded. We're checking off stretch goals. Uh, and I want to talk about the rewards. But before we do that, I want to remind everybody, go to Kickstarter. Check out Murders and Acquisitions RPG right now while we're talking about the rewards. Go Open ahead. Do it, up, it. You know? do, do it right now. We'll wait. We'll wait. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to wait right now. Right and, now. Okay. And... <laughs> Thanks for backing. Hey, we yeah, really appreciate it. That was great. Uh, and for those of you who are still making it to your computers, uh, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about the uh, the rewards here. Uh, you know, uh, what mm -hmm. kind of rewards can can people get? Uh, I myself will be uh, pledging right after we finish this interview. 
<laughs> Excellent. Um, the raw, the, the, the backer levels are, are pretty straightforward. I kept it real simple. You know, first time doing this, I got so much else going on. It's like, I'm not gonna, first of all, I'm making a game. I'm not making a swag bag. So there's no dice. There's no t-shirts. There's no caps. There's no mouse pads. It's a game. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it's, you know, $15 is, uh, the, the, the base buy-in for the game itself. And that, that gets you everything in PDF. Uh, the entire book, including every stretch goal that we unlock, there's no higher level to get the additional content. You get all of it at 15 bucks. Um, and there's on top of that, there's a whole series of PDF so support materials that are going into the game as well. These are things that aren't necessary to play, but they will help you play. Um, and there's you know upwards of a hundred ish pages of that. And the book is going to be around 160 or 170 pages. So. You know, 260, 270, maybe 280 pages total of, of everything. Um, at $20, you, um, you get all of that that I just said. And, of course, everybody gets a thank you. Um, you'll, you'll have your name listed in the book. Um, and you get a code to take to drivethroughrpg.com where you can purchase a soft or hardcover version of the book in a you know, physical form um, at cost. And that means, for those people who don't understand or don't know, that means... Um, that you get it um, for the base cost that it takes to print and ship the book, as in nobody gets any profit. The, a book of the size I'm putting out, believe it or not, costs about five bucks to print. And in the U.S., um, backers will get it shipped for about five bucks. So a soft cover is going to cost you ten bucks beyond the, the 20 that you just paid to the Kickstarter. A hardcover costs five dollars more than that, 250 for every piece of cardboard, apparently. Um, you know, and, and so. You know, if you get the hardcover, you're talking 20 bucks at the Kickstarter, 15 bucks ish um, when you have to order the book. So 35 bucks for, you know, a hardcover full game. Everything you need to play is all there in that game book, plus all that support material. Um, there's a couple of other higher backer levels, but they all filled up very quickly. <laughs> um, and they involve getting uh, your likeness in an illustration. It's possible that people will, will uh, dump out of those. Every, you, know, you, see, you get cancellations in any Kickstarter. It's possible that somebody will cancel out of one of those. So one of those might suddenly open up, but I, I don't expect that to necessarily happen. Well, it absolutely sounds like a great deal. Uh, I, we've been seeing the print-on-demand more and more from uh, various Kickstarters, which I think is a great thing and really helps people uh, know how much money they have to spend on great gaming content that they're creating, uh, which is certainly a thing that I want more of. Um, so it's, it's awesome that you're doing that. It's awesome that this is your first Kickstarter and it's already going really successfully. And it's sounds like a really fun, really, really original uh, game. So I, for one, can't wait to grab it and play it with my friends. Like I said, bring it to work. Maybe it'll be a great team builder. Uh, <laughs> so, so Craig, where can people find you on the internet then? Um, well, there's uh, nerdburgergames.com um, where uh, that's, that's the home of my little company. Right now, it's chock full of murders and acquisition stuff. Um, there's a blog page there that you can go back to, and uh, that has blogs back to about August of last year when I started the page. And there's also a link in there that will take you to another site where I had previously blogged. You can actually go back and see. I started blogging on the very first rule set. Because I wanted to have a record for myself of like how did this game go? You know, even if, if if the game failed, or or if it, you know, if this is the only thing I ever do independently like this, I wanted to have a nice record of like you know how where did I 
you know, how did this go for me? I started here and I ended up here. Um, so you can, you, you know, you can go back and see what it looked like the very first time, um, you know, when, that I, that I put a set of rules in front of, uh, friends of mine when I was hoping that it would maybe gain some traction. The big thing right now is the, the schedule page lists, um, all of the places that I'm appearing and talking and doing this and that, including, you know, I've got a, a, a note in there for being on this podcast. Um, and I'll, I'll note, I'll note in there once I find out from you, um, when the episode will go up and, uh, you know, just kind of keeping people apprised on that. Um, there I did I'm doing like a little audio journal thing where I'm recording some audio just every so often about how the Kickstarter itself is going. And it's just like little five, five, six, seven, eight minute blurbs of just like, oh, this is what happened in the last five days. Um again, one of those things that I'm just I'm I'm, I'm almost doing that for myself more than anything, because I want to have a record of you know everything I went through. So um there's that. Uh there's uh the Nerdburger Games has a Facebook page. You can go there and like that and I I post things up there so you can see um if you you know if you like the page it'll be on your feed. And so you can kind of keep up with things on that. Um and it, right now during the Kickstarter that stuff's getting posted everywhere, right? Um how the Kickstarter is doing. But after the Kickstarter is done, obviously I won't be posting a lot to Kickstarter. I'll be posting things here and there. To, there'll be updates to backers, but there'll be a lot of, you know, like the Facebook page will be kind of where I'll that'll be the the public face of where I'll post a little, you know, kind of throw updates up there every so often. If you if you don't mind a little plug too, there's oh, yeah. Go the, right the, the the Nerdburger podcast. Oh, nice. um, which uh, me and a friend of mine um, who is actually working on the game as well, he's he's contributing, um, have been doing for a little over three years. That's at nerdburgershow.com. It's all part of Nerdburger Enterprises. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and that's just like a that's a that's a weekly one hour um, just potpourri of all sorts of geeky, nerdy news and, and general discussion. And it's it's strong on the humor. We, we it's, it's very conversational. We just kind of have a good time. Um, and, you know, every so often we talk about my Kickstarter. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Although not as much lately because uh, that first week was rough. I mean, it's like that's all we talked about. But we've gotten back to the kind of the standard um, content for the podcast lately. Um, I think that's the uh, the whole gist. of That's where you can find me as far as like the, the, the best places to go to find out anything about what's going on. Nice, nice. Well, I am super, super excited for you and for this, and we are going to link everything you just talked about over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the roundtable today. You are welcome, James. I appreciate you uh, having me on board. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and I can't wait to play this game. And before we go, there's a final segment that we've started doing every week here on the Roundtable. Each week, we highlight a new product in our DMs Guild pick of the episode. This week's highlighted DMs Guild product comes from Devin Cutler. It's called Beasts from the Abyss. Beasts from the Abyss is a 55-page PDF that costs only $2.99. It's a compendium of 36 fiends from the Abyss for use with 5th edition D&D. These beasts have challenge ratings from one half all the way up to 18. It includes creatures from 3rd and 4th edition, along with artwork provided by Wizards of the Coast. Go check it out. There is a direct link to Beasts from the Abyss over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. All right, everyone. I want to thank my panelists, Dan Dillon, Skylar Esau, and my guest, Craig Campbell. 
You can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. There's tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games over there and links to my own DM's Guild products. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Mike. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to the Ramp Table.